This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have an old friend as a, a guest. His name is David Kotak. He has been on the street for over 40 years. He's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. I know David for a decade plus, and David pretty much knows everybody on the street. He's one of these guys who've been around, not only been around for a long time, but is super plugged in. Um, you'll hear him discuss some of the Federal Reserve chairman that he's met. He's pretty much met every Fed chair since the 1970s. He's really an interesting guy, very knowledgeable, especially about active bond management and muni bonds. He, he's an interesting, runs an interesting portfolio, passive uh, ETF index equities, but active bonds. And and there's a very specific reason for that that we, we talk about. Um, David uh, hosts something which has become known as the Shadow Federal Reserve meetings. He's also the chairperson of the Global Inter Interdependence um, Committee and, and basically puts together a series of conferences um, around the world where heads of state and, and head, heads of various central banks come and debate economic issues and policies and monetary policy. It's really a fascinating group. I'm fortunate enough to participate in the the what's become what's become known as Camp Kotak, but it really began as the Shadow uh, Federal Reserve Committee, which uh, similarly debates issues of the Federal Reserve and interest rate policy, as well as monetary and fiscal policy, investing issues, investing postures, regulation, all sorts of things like that. It's a fascinating collection of, of people, um, a, a number of whom uh, have appeared on the show over the past year, uh, but about 50 or 60 people from all walks of life from all over the world come by and, and meet in Maine uh, from as far as w away as Abu Dhabi and, and as close as um, New York City. And essentially, uh, five or six dozen of us get together in cabins and, and have these Fascinating uh, discussions, a, a little bit of fishing and a little bit of drinking takes place as well. But I, I find David just to be one of these old school guys. He does things the right way. He, he came up through um, a very rough period in markets in, in the 1970s. And I, I think his approach is, is very circumspect and, and very reasonable. And there are a lot of things to be learned from him. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with David Kotak. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is an old friend, someone I've known for a long time. His name is David Kotak, and he is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors, a firm now located in Florida that manages a couple of billion dollars. Um, quick background on David. Uh, Bachelor's from University of Pennsylvania, 1965, eventually gets both an MS and an MA, Master's in Philosophy, from University of Pennsylvania. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, author of four books, including the best-selling From Bear to Bull with ETFs, soon to be the author of the upcoming Adventures in Muniland. 
Uh, David, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, it's so nice to be with you. We've chased us for a while, and here we are, and we don't have fishing rods in our hands. I know. We're normally, just... normally when I'm with you, I, I usually have a speckled trout on the line, and I'm <laughs> showing off uh, a wide-mouth bass. Um, we consi- I don't like to brag. You know how humble I am. But I consistently am the top-performing angler in, in Camp Kotak, which we will we'll talk about in a little later. Let, let's start out talking a bit about your background. So you have a somewhat unusual background. In addition to all that academic uh, training, you were an Army captain in from 66 to 69. Is that is that correct? Well, that's right. I, I finished undergraduate school at Wharton in 65, and at that period in our history— Vietnam War, full, yeah, full throat. Full throat. And um, I spent three years in the Army, 66 to 69, and then got out and came back to New Jersey. And in 1970, I became registered as a solo investment advisor under the 40s Act. So before we fast forward, I find the fact that you were a captain in the Army fascinating what was that training like, and, and is any of that applicable to your day job? Well, the, the Army is a great experience. Um, under most circumstances, most people would not repeat it. Right. But they would also say, and many of my friends would say, I'm glad I did it. And number two, I'm glad I'm here. So that's the Dorothy Parker quote, I hate writing but love having written. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. That's right. And the thing about the, that the Army experience, a military experience that helps me is it creates a hierarchical structure in your thinking, mm-hmm. a reporting system, a system in which you follow directives. And so when you think in terms of that structure, it helps you in a business environment. And it actually helps me when I look at businesses and I look at governance and I look at situations around the world in terms of investment advice and decisions because I can measure them in the context of their structure. You you understand how the decision-making process is implemented in a similar military style at places like central banks and uh, other assorted governmental entities? Sure, because you, the experience is not only the textbook experience in the study of organizations and businesses, but in the Army, you have somebody above you and somebody below you who have to transmit a directive, and you have to see, the, see it through and accomplish something. So, so it's very you, helpful to me. So let's talk a little bit about government. You were on the transition teams for both New Jersey Governor Tom Keene and New Jersey Governor Christy Whitman. Did you see that same sort of hierarchical structure and ability to follow directives at the state level? Uh, We saw it, and we also saw the absence of it, and therefore uh, the structure of a new government is to try to create order. In the transition, you have chaos. Mm -hmm. Creating order out of chaos is always a difficult thing to do, and that's what the world's about. So... My prior experience helped me in both transition teams. You you know, you set up a new government, you have a lot of new personalities, there's a very rapid change in personalities, and the leader at the top, the new governor, is like an electronic machine with people banging at them and pinging at them every second, trying to put together, and in New Jersey's case, 
The governor of New Jersey is very powerful. So mm-hmm. there are a couple of thousand appointed positions in the government. And so it was a lot to do. It was great experience transition teams. So let's fast forward to what you do for a living today. You run a, a firm that's primarily known as an active bond shop. How does that differ from just more passive bond ownership? Well, we, we, we have a 40-year-plus uh, history in active management of bonds. We do our own credit work. We look at what rating agencies do, but we do our own credit work as well. And we also have a pretty good ETF segment, mm-hmm. although uh, that, that has a lot of uh, growing prominence, but we're known for a long time as a bond shop. So let me ask you a question about active bonds. The the rub on active equities is, hey, you're probably in the long haul better off just being passive, low cost, and just leave it go. But the studies say the same isn't true for bonds. You're better off being somewhat active, or at least that's the, the academic math. A- explain why that works and, and how it works. Well, well, we think so, Barry. The the yield curve, the distribution of interest rates over maturities, mm-hmm. shifts all the time. So it by itself is active for a variety of reasons having nothing to do uh, with the bond uh, buyer's daily activity. Those are functions of government and central banks and economic activity. But because they're there, you can take advantage of them in an active bond approach rather than just buy a bond, hold it, collect the interest, and get the principal when the bond matures. So the yield curve shift is one of the issues. The directions of each of those policy pieces, central banks, governance, deficits, are are also big pieces. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is David Kotak. He is the CIO of Cumberland Advisors with about $2.3 billion in assets under management. And I want to start this segment with a quote of yours that I, I find intriguing. You said, quote, we believe the value of stocks and bonds is enduringly linked to interest rates and the cost of money. Interest rates eventually dominate that valuation process and are the market's way of restoring equilibrium. So there's a lot in that. Let, let's discuss it. What? Why do you believe that interest rates are so crucial to stocks and bonds? The valuation of every financial asset is a discounting mechanism, some sort of a- attempt to estimate what it's going to be worth tomorrow and at what rate do you discount tomorrow to today. And that is the fundamental interest rate. Now, you can argue, is it the nominal interest rate? Is it the real interest rate? You have to adjust for risk. But the what bottom, about the bottom line is an interest rate? It's the cost of money. It's the you cost of, of risk-free what you would get if you were just putting money in, in treasuries. Well, or something that is essentially risk-free. And the fact is, every single financial decision has to be compared with the risk-free rate and the maturity that coincides with the financial decision you're making. So if you're buying stocks, for example, you have a very long-term asset pool. Mm -hmm. If you take all the stocks and lump them together and call them stock market and you bought one share of stock market, it's a very long-lived pool. The same thing might be true with a very long-term bond. So you say to yourself, okay, do I expect 
to the long-term bond maturity or the outcome of the long-term share of stock market to produce a result, what is the result I expect, and how do I discount that result to today to decide whether or not to do it? That discounting mechanism is an interest rate. So you add to the initial part of the quote that eventually interest rates are part of the valuation process that are the market's way of restoring equilibrium. Explain what that means. Well, markets move up and down. They represent the consensus pricing view of all the agents in the market at any given minute. Agents meaning all the buyers and sellers. All the buyers and sellers. Anybody who's a player has a way to buy or sell at a price every second. And they all have information. How does this whole mass clear? In the end, it clears because it reverts to some basic discounted price. And the basic discounted pricing mechanism is the interest rate. Now, the market interest rate may be below or above what would be some natural rate. We Mm -hmm. don't know. So therefore, the market interest rate may be influenced by other forces, and they have to be examined. A good example right now is you have this crazy idea in Europe of a negative interest rate. Switzerland paying, getting paid to borrow money. That's right. We're accustomed to saying to a bank, here's my money, pay me interest, and give it to me when we agree, either tomorrow or a year from now. Now we have a new concept. Here's my money. Store it for me electronically. I will pay you a fee, and at the end of the term, you're going to give me back less than I gave you. That is counterintuitive to any saver or lender. We don't think that way. We never have. And so this is a negative interest. Now you say to yourself, is that going to go on forever? The answer is no. It's not a sustainable system. So can you use the negative interest rate in the marketplace today to discount the value of something? I don't think so. Therefore, you have to guess, estimate, guesstimate at what the interest rate ought to be if it reflected as much as you know. And you would get something other than a negative rate. Because you know a negative interest rate is not a sustainable model, even though it is being applied in one of the largest economic blocks in the world. So let me throw a quote at you from a guest of ours a few weeks ago, ISI's Ed Hyman. And we were talking about Japan practically at zero, Switzerland is negative, Germany's close to 1%, the U.S. is over 2%, all of them on their 10-year bonds. And when I asked Ed, what is the difference between these countries? Is it a function of risk? Is it a function of something else? And he said, interest rates on government bonds reflect expected growth rates. Do you agree with that? Well, I used to say that would have been very accurate. But I think today, to say that by itself is insufficient. Because you're leaving out central bank action. Absolutely. In the, uh, we, ha- we now have extraordinary central bank action, unlike anything we have in the history of man in modern financial times. So let me flash back with you, because you started in the 1970s, and that was an era, I was a wee lad, but I very vigorously remember going to get gas with my gas 
container for the lawnmower and not having the right um, license plate number to, to carry it home. I had to beg the guy for gas to, to mow the lawn. Uh, inflation was off the charts. You launched your business in that era. What was it like during the 1970s when both inflation was high and the interest rates? The 70s, the 70s were remarkable. You started out in a rocky period at the end of the 60s. You got into the 70s, then you had the war in the Middle East. The price of oil went from three bucks to 12. I remember it well. A I barrel, was we're talking it, a, a barrel. barrel, not a gallon. Not a gallon. I was in this business managing portfolios when that happened. And the rate of inflation in the 70s went to double digits. It was remarkable. Interest rates had been at levels, and at the time of the first shock, they hit the highest interest rate since the Civil War in the United States. Can you imagine a hundred-year period, and now you have a new all-time high interest rate? The prime rate hit 12, never thinking that six or seven years later it would be higher. Higher still. Higher still. In the last minute we have... What ended up happening with rates there, and, and how did that set off the next cycle in bonds? Well, we had a big inflation. Rates went up. They were double digits. Inflation went to double digits. It was the end of the Carter regime. In comes Paul Volcker, who deserves a medal as a national hero for the United States. He said in 1979, I will stop this inflation no matter what I have to do. And he did it. Bonds peaked, and the long bond rally started in 1981. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is David Kotak. He is the chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors, managing $2.3 billion, and a fly fisherman extraordinary. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a, in a later segment. Let's get right into the Federal Reserve. You have known personally and met with every Fed chairman going back to 1970. Tell us how that came about. Well, I met Arthur Burns twice. I mm -hmm. had two meetings with Arthur Burns in his office. In so March he was the Fed day. chief from uh, 1970 to 1978. Um, yeah, I never met Miller. That that preceded him. Or he was no, a real Martin. short. I never met McChesney Martin, uh -huh. and I never met Miller, who was there for a very short period of time in the Carter administration. Mm -hmm. He was replaced quickly by Volcker, which was a good thing. Mm -hmm. I met Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns really was a, was a, a smart economist, very skilled, knew his history, and he in he takes on the chairing of the Federal Reserve when the first energy shock happened in the 70s. We 72, just, 73, something Well, 73, like 74. Okay. We just talked about it. Mm -hmm. So you think of yourself, there you are as a Fed chairman, your economy goes into a recession. The price of oil has gone up fourfold. People are in gas lines. Mm -hmm. People aren't flying. There are no airplanes, no automobiles. The U.S. economy has been clobbered on the head by this rising energy. We were very energy dependent since the end of sure. World War II. And we had a massive adjustment. Interest rates are up. Inflation is rate. How do you balance all of this with monetary policy? That is what Burns faced. Now, critics would say Burns tried to do everything, balance the middle, and therefore accomplish some of each and not enough of any. And 
that's easy to do in retrospect. It's always easy to judge the game on a Monday, as you know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You bet. So here's Burns facing raising interest rates because he wants to fight inflation. Very counterintuitive when you have a very weak uh, economy. And he's got auto manufacturers not making autos, people not flying on planes, and people not ordering planes, airlines not ordering planes, because the energy price is spiking up. So you have this cross-current. That was Burns' period at the Fed. And he did some of each, but not enough to keep the inflation from rising. So in the mid-70s, the economy started to recover, but the inflation rate was then accelerating, and it accelerated to above 10% at the peak. Imagine, above 10%. Above 10. And the 10-year was yielding, if, if memory serves, 15 or so percent? Well, it went into well into double digits at the end. Mm -hmm. And every time you ratcheted up interest rates, they were a new high level, and people said, oh my gosh... I want to buy bonds, these bonds. I've never seen yields like right. this. In our shop, we said, wait a minute, there's a force driving up these bonds. And it is too soon mm -hmm. to buy bonds when you have an acceleration of inflation. You must be able to see the end of the tunnel because you have no idea where that is. So Rates are going higher, bonds are going cheaper. Yes. And and when did bonds we, finally we, peak? Well, we stood aside on the bond market, and we entered the bond market in 1979 when Volcker came in and became chairman. I believe Paul Volcker meant what he said. Uh, that was my personal view. And I remember the first bond I bought after years. It was a Pacific Telephone and Telegraph. Pactel was then a sub of AT&T. Uh -huh. It was 12.15% 30-year telephone bond rated AAA. Wow. That was the first bond that we had bought for clients in years. And you know, 12% on AAA corporate bonds from the telephone company. People would kill to get that. Time. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Little did I know that at the end of the slam when the bond market was in a free fall that bond would trade below 80 cents on a dollar wow it by the way bounced back was then subsequently called and everybody that we bought it for had a 12 percent income flow and got their money back on the call so volker comes in and he had warned everybody i will do whatever it takes and he proceeds to ratchet up rates to unprecedented level absolutely causes a recession by design what was that era like to, to manage money through? I lost all my hair. My beard turned gray. <laughs> look. Oh, so you look just like you do today. Exactly. That's I aged I aged everything in 18 months. That's but but that was 35 years ago. You're telling me this is how you looked since, when- I haven't changed since. This is how you looked when you were 35. That's exactly right. I haven't changed <laughs> since since the Volcker slam. Volcker was, was dead on. He said- we will lose the country if we have double-digit inflations, and we must reverse it no matter what it takes. So he took the short-term pain, and within a year, it turned. Within a year, interest rates started the fall, and they fell for the next 30 years. Inflation went back to single digits and continued to decline. Real growth then accelerated, and We've had a glorious story for the last 30 years. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is David Kotak. He is the 
co-founder and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors, as well as being a fishing buddy for, for many, many years. Let, let's start out the segment by talking about Camp Kotak, as it's uh, now become known. It kind of started out as the Shadow Federal Reserve um, Committee. T- tell us about those uh, those events. Well, the Shadow Federal Reserve, Kansas City Fed Shadow thing was a nickname that John Hilsenrath gave us when he came up one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how it creeped. Wall Street Journal reporter, now kind of known as the Fed Whisperer, the Fed, the Fed took, guy, took yeah. over Greg Ipps' slot as the Fed's liaison to the Egg- Wall Street Journal. Exactly. So anyway, Hilsenrath was there for a day and a half, and he, he coined that nickname. The Camp Kotak nickname came from Becky Quick. Okay. And uh, Becky Quick put it up on a screen during an interview. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how it stuck. She, she originated the name. The name is stuck, and it's grown, I guess, now to become fairly commonly known. So tell us a little bit about Camp Kotak. What was the uh, genesis of this? How okay. did it come about? I've been fortunate enough to be going to Camp Kotak for almost a decade. It, it feels like it just started. Yeah, well, you keep it up, you'll get tenure. Okay, that's what that's I'm hoping a, for. Look, we, we were a couple of guys saying, we need to get away, go out in the woods somewhere, and just think about the world, finance, economics, markets, without all the... Minute-by-minute interruptions. The the tick-by-tick daily pressure. And I had been um, going to Grand Lake Stream, Maine. This is my 25th year. So I said, I know a place. We can come fishing. We can stay in a camp. It was a different camp. It wasn't Lean's Lodge at Mm -hmm. the time. I said, so let's go up there for a weekend. And that's how it started, and it grew. How many people were in the This was a handful. This was half a dozen people people or fewer. On 9-11... When a group of us were at the NABE meeting and got out of the second tower, mm-hmm. and in that group were people like Harvey Rosenblum from sure. the Dallas Fed, Stu Hoffman, a lot of folks you know. Mm-hmm. And we were having this discussion. I had invited Wait, wait, them. wait. Back up. So you're at a meeting uh, in the second uh, World Trade Center, yeah. Building 2. What floor was this? Well, we had come down, and we were on the ground floor. Very fortunate. So we were out in six minutes, eight minutes. Mm-hmm. We were very, very lucky to get out. But during that time, up until then, I'd said, Harvey, come on, we'll go away somewhere. We'll be able to talk. Ah, I don't want to go fishing. I don't want to go in the woods. Hoffman, I don't want to go fishing. I don't want to go in the woods. All of them. Brush with then, death changes your perspective. It sure it? did. And that changed it. And the group the following year was the largest ever, which might have been 12. Mm-hmm. And it has grown ever since. And you give, know what give it's us like because you've been there. Sure. Give us you some are, names of people who attend because it's really a collection of A-list names. Well, it's a collection of people who like economics, financial markets, geopolitics, government, who have diverse views, who are Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservative. We've had, uh, last year we had Gary Schilling with his views, Paul McCulley with his views, uh, Jack Rivkin with his views, uh, uh, Natalie Cohen from Wales, who's got expertise in municipal credit. We, We have men and women from around the world. Martin Barnes comes from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul O'Brien came from Abu Dhabi. So you have a mix of people from all over the world. And what do we do? We have no PowerPoint. 
None whatsoever. None whatsoever. I can attest to that. The the speeches are limited to five or six minutes, and even that's unless not Rosie tolerated. talks, in which case it's yeah, all exactly. Bets are off. And we have dialogue, and we talk to each other, and we have visitors who are professionals in the well, media. The Governor LePage last year showed well, up. Governor's and... coming back this Friday. He this is his fourth year. Uh, on Thursday, we've got a congressman who's on the House Financial Services Committee. And uh, he 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 was a state treasurer. Is Bruce Poliquin? You may remember he, he was up. He was once. there one other year. Yeah, yeah. His name is familiar. And and we'll have a debate on some issue, probably on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And we'll have gatherings. Now the gatherings are discussions. You've been in the thick of them. You mm-hmm. solved the world's problems in the morning. Repeatedly. And, repeatedly. Right. At the end of the weekend, they're still there. Someone's got to do They just That's don't right. enact my policies. Look, Otherwise, all these things would be If fixed. they would only listen to you, Barry. <laughs> so, so it's a great discussion in an environment which is informal. It's in pristine water, in a watershed, in forests with wildlife. It's like no other land I've ever been on. I mean, and we preserve the It's the, the wilderness. It's, it's absolutely... This is no other than a couple of cabins here and there. There's no difference than what this was like a hundred thousand or a million years ago. It's other than the withdrawing glaciers are what actually created these lakes, but it's absolutely pristine, wild, amazing land. Nothing like I've ever seen anywhere in the United States. And, and it's protected. There's a huge complex, uh, a huge acreage which is in a land trust. So that'll never develop. And it adjoins the Passamaquoddy Indian Reservation land, which is in a separate configuration. And therefore, it's impossible to see the kind of resort erosion, that that the inroads of resorts that would take away this setting. So that's good for the economic development of Maine if that happened, but it would be bad for all this pristine land. I think so. And but so, you, I mean, if you look at what we do, we hire every guide within fifty right. miles. We we bring in a group. We're with, we may be the biggest economic activity I, it, uh, pe- all we, summer. Yeah, we people joke. They say you're ten percent of the GDP of the whole <laughs> county. I don't know what it is, but it would be uh, you know. And I think, by the way, we do good things. We spend Absolutely. money. We pay people. They have jobs. So we make the, donations to the land trust. People absolutely. are very. There's an active philanthropic arm to this as well. And, yeah. And so, so let's talk a little bit about the debates and the discussions. I could tell from personal experience, everything is off the record. It's all Chatham House rules where you can describe what was said, but you can't identify. Paul McCulley said, what? You're not allowed to do that. It's all on the, on the down low. But some of the conversations are really quite fascinating, especially when you realize, hey, you have the number four guy at PIMCO debating – Someone from the Philadelphia Fed and this guy. For, it's really very high-level debates and conversations. I, well, I think the conversations are, are great, and the people who come have a basic platform of information so you can cut right to the issue and dissect it immediately. And we do this. I mean, there's media that cover it. So as you know, if you have somebody's permission, you can quote them. You can interview them. But if you don't, then you can take the takeaway from the group. But you can't quote somebody unless you get their permission first. And that that creates a a sort of level of comfort where people say things that they wouldn't say if they were on camera or on the record 
there's a very much let your hair down and say what you really think environment, yeah, I, which is relatively rare these days. Uh, I, I think so. And I think the second part is that if you walk by a conversation and you hear something you really shouldn't have heard, mm-hmm. you ignore it. Now, you may remember it. This is like telling the jury to disregard the testimony. Right. But you don't go quote it in the newspaper because you walk by a conversation. Right. And there's Barry Ritholtz talking to somebody in a private conversation. You heard something that Ritholtz said. That's nobody else's business. So by agreement, we we apply a modified version of the Chatham House rule and the Jackson Hole rule. Mm-hmm. And therefore, whatever is public from the weekend is by agreement with the permission of the person who said it. And it's really just the tip of the iceberg. So, so let's talk a little bit about the Global Interdependence Center. You're now Chairman Emeritus, but you ran their programs for a long time. And this is really an even higher level version well, of, yeah. of, of, of a much more sophisticated, first of all, Aren't you housed in the in the Philadelphia? Our Fed? offices are in the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Building. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I'm program chair, okay. past program chair, no no longer the program chair. And Dunkelberg is the chairman emeritus. As Bill is, Dunkelberg, economist at uh, National, National Federation of Independent Business, mm-hmm. and George Chichekos, who is the former dean of the business school at Drexel, mm-hmm. is also a chairman emeritus. I was the program chair, and I chaired the central banking series. John Sylvia at Wells Fargo is now chairing Central Banking. Michael Drury at McVean Trading in Memphis is now chairman. And Don Rissmiller in Strategus is now the program mm-hmm. chair. And I'm just the old goat getting in the way and stirring the pot. So so tell us about, because this is all around the world, tell us about what these meetings are and, and who attends these and, and what policy and information comes out of these conferences. Well, the, the Global Interdependence Center idea was to convene dialogue in a neutral way and allow different points of view to be discussed. And hopefully, you get people of goodwill together in such a discussion and some good outcome occurs. That was behind the thinking of it. Convene dialogue with a neutral platform. That enabled us, by the way, to invite people who otherwise wouldn't go to other platforms. Because here was a place that said just by coming and having a discussion, you created the way in which things may get better. And that was mostly in economic trade, monetary affairs, but it was also in health and in water. And and I was the program chair. We've been speaking with David Kotak. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. If you want to read more of David's work, you can go to cumber.com. And I haven't noticed you tweeting very much. I don't think there's a uh, a Twitter handle for there's you. There's a at Cumberland ADV. At Cumberland ADV on Twitter. Uh, if you want to check out m- the rest of our conversation, be sure and go to either Apple iTunes or Bloomberg.com and you'll hear... Uh, David and I continuing talking about fishing and other such stuff. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. I'm here with an old friend, David Kotak. David, how long have we known each other? 150 years. McKinley was president when we met each other. I'm not. You have a couple of years on me, but it certainly feels like it's it's that. You and I had done a number of television hits and a couple of things. Different things. I want to say early 2000s, so it's got to be well over a decade. 
And when I first went to Camp Kotak, when I first got invited, I tell four or five stories about that first weekend. I'll never forget. This is a true story. Uh, so this will... Uh, I have a ton of questions for you, but I have to share this one story. So I get invited to Camp Kotak, and I'm like, do I really want to schlep all the way up to Maine? you got to fly an hour, and then you drive three hours, really in the middle of nowhere. I had never been there before. And um, someone I, I asked goes, you got an invitation to that? How'd you get invited? I know David. He said, you got to, dude, you got to go. Oh, okay, so I go. So we we get up there. You, you, you finally get there, and... and the property and the lake and everything, it's insane. I'll never forget the first time we take a fish, we, th- you know, it's catch and release, we throw it back, and this eagle swoops down. The fish is in the water for eight seconds, 50 feet from the, from the canoe. This eagle swoops down, grabs the fish, flies away. It was the most dumbfounding thing I had ever seen. I'm like, this is really the wilderness, isn't it? And then Saturday night, we're playing <clears throat> poker, and I'll never forget Scott Frew, and I are at the table, and I don't remember who the fourth person was, but Scott Frew and I are we're each we're all drinking. By the way, everyone should know the cost of admission is everybody has to bring a half a case of of good wine, or in John Molden's case, a, a case of crappy wine. But basically, <laughs> it's half a case of wine, and there's a ton of drinking, but responsibly. And Paul McCulley of Pimco. Gets up and says to me, "Can I can I refill your your sure absolutely?" And then somebody else gets up to Scott, gets up and says to Scott Frew, who runs Rockingham Capital, which is a hedge fund, "Can I refill your glass?" Sure. And I they the two of them walk away, and I just turn to Scott and say, uh, "My waiter manages five hundred billion dollars more than your waiter, and because his waiter was only a five hundred billion dollar firm as opposed to." A trillion dollar firm. It it was like one of the most bizarre things I, I've ever seen in my life. And it's we just everybody at the table laughed. Not because it was so funny, but because it was so it's such an unusual grouping and so fascinating. Well, it's a wonderful grouping. I remember Absolutely. when you came in the beginning and I I thought to myself, Well, here's a New York City boy. He's coming up to Maine. And his experience with fishing is to go buy locks and zabars. And now <laughs> he's going to have a fishing rod in his hand. This will be interesting to see. And, of course, you had a famous episode at Camp Kota. Well, which one? The one where you nearly burned down the entire well, forest. Well, hold the first year, before we nearly burnt the cabin down, the, the first <clears throat> year. So I was a ringer. You didn't know I spent my summers upstate New York fishing my childhood into my 20s and 30s. So it was the first day of our first year, and everybody was complaining they weren't catching any fish. And everyone should know, we meet in this island in the center of the lake. The guides clean all the fish. We have a giant fish fry, and and everybody eats fantastically. Yeah, we gain too much weight. We eat too much food. So Scott and I pull up um, in the canoe, and I, so one of the guides said, hey, I hope you guys caught something because we got no fish. We each had 30-plus on a, on a stringer. I'm holding my hand up because it was a as tall as I, I'm standing, just under six feet. We had that much fish, and after that, nobody—oh, here's a, a New York uh, 
boy, not able to fish. We 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 held our own that year. You did, you we, did. We also had John Brown, who I still think is the uh, the best guide there. So he's the one who deserves all, Everybody all the credit. Everybody falls in love with their guide on the first. Nearly everybody is that true? Yes, everybody's guide the first time becomes their favorite guide. And by the way, that's probably true of all kinds of things like this. But mm-hmm. it, I've seen it over and over again, and and that's okay. That's so, fine. So the other episode you, you mentioned about nearly burning the cabin down was I'm in a cabin. It's me and Scott Frew, Chris Whalen. Chris Whalen was Josh there. Josh Rosner. Rosner. So these are guys fairly well known on Wall Street. Barry from NASDAQ, the other uh, Barry. Nobel. Barry Nobel. Nobel from NASDAQ. Yeah. And we're using the same towels over and over again. And here's where the New York City boy gets into trouble. So- you're in an apartment in New York City. The radiators are 10,000 degrees. You come out of the, before you're engaged, while you're still a disgusting single guy, you come out of the shower with a wet towel. You throw it over the radiator. By the time you get home, hey, I got a clean, dry, warm towel. It's fantastic. Um, my <laughs> wife basically cringes every time she hears that story. But meanwhile, it turns out if you do that up at Camp Kotak, unless it's really a 100 ply cotton towels, you run into a little trouble. And apparently these were not cotton ply towels. They It started to smoke. The room filled up with a, a thick, noxious... I was already in the main lodge working on whatever I was working on that day on the because that was the best place for Wi-Fi. Apparently Barry Nobel wakes up, can't see anything through the smoke, crawls on his hands and knees, finds the smoldering towel... Drags it outside and rescued everybody from a fate worse than death. The funny part of it was that towel smoldered for three days. I don't know what it was made of, but it did not go out for three days. It just wow. sat outside smoldering. Well, the, 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 the story got embellished because, of course, pretty soon <laughs> we, are, we get the report about you, your towel. Right. And, and almost burning down the cabin, which was probably exaggeration. But from almost burning down the cabin became the Ritholtz forest fire. <laughs> right. Acres. And it just every year gets better. I think it's like a fish. You know, fish it gets, gets bigger, larger bigger. as you keep talking. Jo- Josh Rosner once said something to me and he goes, Ritholtz, are there going to be any more accidents this year? And I go, Josh. You still think that was an accident? <laughs> he he eventually figured out not to mess with me, or else uh, I would I would. That burn was him a down. that was good natured teasing. The, there was um, it was pretty hilarious, and and it was one of those things that when you tell I tell the story, I get home and tell it to my wife, and she's like, "What else did you do? What what am I not hearing about? If I'm only hearing about the fire, what was the the real big problem?" So <laughs> I I actually this is my favorite trip of the year. I look forward to it every year. It's it's so relaxing. And it's such a great crowd of people. And I always learn. Um, uh, the chief economist at Freddie Mac, I had such a fascinating. Dun- Duncan. Duncan. Fannie Mae. such had a. Fannie, uh, Mae. Yeah. Fannie Mae or Freddie yeah, Mac? Fannie Mae. You sure? Yep. I want to say Freddie Mac. Well, okay. Um, but he's he's a fascinating, fascinating guy. Understands not just housing, but the economy better than just about anybody I know. He And there's a two dozen people that. When when I introduce them to a newbie, it almost always is, and he understands this space better than anybody I know. It's it's really an amazing uh, collection of folks. You deserve kudos for well, it's for a, pulling it's these a nice together. group, and and we also have 
media personalities. Mm -hmm. uh, Kathleen Hayes has been up sure. there from Bloomberg. Mike McKee. He's coming uh, up this Bloomberg. year, isn't Mike he? Mike is coming up this year. So you, you, you have folks who either are journalists and study the world, have to report on the world, they have to be thinking about it, or you have folks who have to uh, analyze it because they're financial market types or they're money mm -hmm. managers, or we have academics or economists. Sure. We mix them all up. Uh, from Dartmouth Tuck last year, we had he was, he was Danny Blanchflower. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Who was uh, was on the UK uh, yeah. uh, their central bank, the yeah. bank um, Bank and of a, England. And another year we had Mike Dooley. Mike Dooley, when he was IMF World Bank in his career, was the guy who designed the Brady Bond that's to right. solve the South American financial crisis. In fact, the original name for that bond was the Dooley Bond. Oh no, kidding! And then Nick Brady co-opted the name because he was the treasury secretary well that's that's you know one of the uh great great advantages of power so so let's talk a little bit about about you and some of your um early mentors and and things like that who who were your early mentors now you you asked me that in the notes ahead of time you said i'm going to ask you about you and i will give you a name but it may not be familiar doesn't matter Okay. We have Google. But, we can track people down. I don't know if, uh, well, it'd be interesting. I never Googled him. But in thinking about it, there was an economist in New York. His name was Gabriel Karakesh. Karakesh. Rhymes with Marrakesh. Got it. He was Hungarian. He His history was back to the good body era, way back in Wall Which Street. is what? You're so, talking good he, body is he, how long? Oh, gosh. I mean, this is a long time ago. 30s and 40s? Decades, many decades. And he was a mentor to me when I was starting out in this business. In fact, the first serious work that I published was with a journal that's no longer in existence, and we co-authored it together. And he, it was a piece about long cycles. You're refreshing. All this memory mm -hmm. is flooding back now. And we talked about the Kondratiev cycle oh, and the God. kitchen cycle. Dear Lord. The, this is 50 years ago. Sure. It still comes up every ago. time there's a market crash. Always. It pops up. Yeah. All right, now we're, yeah. we're mired in hell for the so, next 50 years. Gabby was the... Uh, the first serious economist who mentored me in the early stages of this business. And he had a wonderful, he spoke with a deep Hungarian accent, and he had a wonderful line I learned from him. And it was something like this, I'm going to massacre the accent, but he said, you're going to have a PhD and still be an SOB. Okay. And that was his... That, that was a line I learned from him, but I also learned a lot of very good economic thinking from him. So let's talk a little bit about investors. What investors out there do you appreciate, like, and who inf up influenced your approach to investing? Ah, well, uh, uh, this is a, an accumulation of decades, mm -hmm. so this is not an, such an easy question. Uh, I, I don't like to talk about others because I don't want to say anything negative, and therefore, if I only say positive things... Well, it's don't tell us who's terrible. Okay. Tell us who you've learned but, from. But, but what I've learned is this. What I've learned is this. We talked about the enduring nature of interest rates and how important they mm -hmm. are. I've been a student of central banking, monetary economics, all of my adult life. I chaired the central banking series at the Global Interdependence Center, and it's been something that's been uh, of interest to me in... in more than it's been a passionate in passion in terms of study 
So you look at central banking and monetary economics and you say, well, how do you put together policies in systems? How do central banks ever get true independence? And is there such a thing? And what are the political forces that are always trying to influence monetary policy? And they are many. And so I've studied that in great depth. I think it is the most serious input into asset pricing. And therefore, if it's a serious input into asset pricing, it's a serious input into the management of stocks and bonds. And that's been an enduring theme for me. So, of we're, we're by the way, I'm playing with the phone because I'm going to set up a little periscope so people can watch for a few minutes exactly what we're... Uh, what we're doing, let's see if I can make this happen. Um, what are you seeing now? Nothing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the specific investors that you think you learned so much from. Who were the guys that you basically said, I really admire what this person does, even if it's different from, uh, from what, what you do, or, um, oh, currently unavailable. All right, so much for Well, if you look at a theme, mm -hmm. okay, interesting themes in investing. The first yeah. theme that I think is, it has had a massive influence is Bogle and Vanguard. And tremendous. Tremendous. He set a platform in place and essentially took a passive approach and said, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it by weighting the market Capitalization weighting was the theme, and the S&P 500 index became the anchor. And now you think about the fact that that translated into the first exchange-traded fund in 1993. Spider. Right. And uh, it goes back 20 years with the S&P 500 index in a mutual fund as a method of investing. A absolutely. So you say, okay, if there was one single idea that has now dominated stock market investing. It's the notion of a cap-weighted, large-cap group of companies. There is a filtering mechanism. It's Standard & Poor's. Mm -hmm. They decide who's in and out of the index. And a basket by weight. And that has had a profound influence. The S&P 500 index cap-weighted is the benchmark of the American stock market and has been for years. Now, whether you like it or not, you wanted the Dow Jones, you want the NASDAQ, you, whatever you want, every single money manager in the U.S. stock market space either has to use it as a benchmark and refer to it mm -hmm. or explain why not. Well, and, if they're not big cap, they can use the Russell two thousand, sure, or but, they could. If they're international, they can. You can but there's a, always an explanation. There's always an explanation, and if you ask, if you line up a hundred people and say, "What is the premier benchmark for the American stock market?" It's the S and P five hundred index. So that notion, and therefore the notion of passive baskets, accumulations, not trying to do a single stock choice started really, it, it galloped ahead with Bogle. Right. That's 40 years ago. And today, two-thirds of what Vanguard does is passive indexes, and they're running over $3 trillion. Something worked. To, th that may be one of the single greatest investment success stories yeah. of all time. Because for, for, I want to say, the first 20 years, there wasn't a whole lot of acceptance to that 
concept. It was it was there was a small group of people who who understood and appreciated it, but a lot of folks just didn't get it. Well, there's an element to it, and that is very low running costs. So it's a low cost passive structure. And low cost, we, low turnover, low, low taxes. Absolutely. And what do we find? We find that two-thirds of the managers, three-quarters of the managers over time fail to match that index. And they do it. And if you take the total cost structure that it takes to manage Expenses, money and subtract costs. it from the index, you get where the managers are, right. which is what you would expect if you measure the whole crowd. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if there's one single investment concept creator person that puts something in place— it would be Boco. Now you say, where are we today? We're a shop that own, that does no single stock picking. We manage a few hundred million in the ETF space, and we provide models of ETFs for other managers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the amounts involved are larger, but we directly handle, um, uh, I would say, under a half a billion in, in ETFs in a number of different styles. But we have taken that same fundamental principle, low cost, low turnover, or turnover when you have to, don't turn over when you don't, and craft portfolio using ETFs. I think that is a well-established principle now that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. Fascinating. I would, I would say that it existed 20 years ago, but it really didn't have the following. It wasn't as embraced as it's become well it was in the mutual fund complex so at two o'clock in the afternoon you had to decide if you wanted to sell at four o'clock in the afternoon you'd find out what the price was the etf changed all totally completely changed changed all of that um so that that leads me to my next question what has changed since you've joined the industry well Uh, aside from that but the etf change is monumental still underway and it's growing that's number one in the municipal bond space we used to have a notion that if it's insured, it's AAA, you don't even know have to know who the issuer is, you don't have to know what the call provision is, you don't you, give me the coupon and tell me it's insured and it's AAA and that's all I need to know. That changed with the financial crisis. Clearly AAA doesn't have the same weight that it once did. And we have a survivor in the insurance space that didn't get beaten up by going out of the bread and butter business, assured guarantee, and a second one, MBIA. But as a practical matter, remember, we used to have a dozen right. that credit enhanced and had AAA or AA rating. They're and all gone. go down the whole run. Right. So what did, how did, they, what did they do? The, by they, the way, there's a new one that's now a mutual yeah. and in theory is owned by bond underwriters. Yeah. So everybody's in the incentives are now better aligned. Right. So you sit, think of a major change. Here's a major change. You've got this $3.5 trillion space financing state and local governments throughout the United States, 90,000 different entities, 40,000 different bond issuers. And all of a sudden, the method of finance is turned upside down with a shock. Right. People don't trust the bond insurers. They don't trust the rating agencies. Congress comes along, passes this massive piece of legislation. We still don't know what it's going to end Dodd up Frank. looking. Dodd-Frank. And people on their own have to evaluate the sewer company, the turnpike, the airport, the school board. Dormitory authority. They don't know how to do it. They've never done it. 
And so for us, this has been a great thing for Cumberland because we had our own credit mechanism. We're in a new business. We get hired now by institutions to be the backup credit surveillance in addition to the rating agency ratings. Mm -hmm. And those are institutions that have to manage. They have constraints. But under Dodd-Frank, they have to have a second opinion. We're qualified second opinion on municipal credit. How, how big of a business line is that? Because I know you guys mostly as asset managers and active bond managers. I think you, memory serves, you became an RIA in 98, a registered investor advisory well, the, service? The new Cumberland in 1998, I registered in 1970 as David Kotak. As an R.I. So why yeah. did you go from Kotak to Cumberland? How did, well, how did I had a, a partner in 1973. He's no longer with us, Shep Goldberg. And he and I founded a firm. We came up with a name. We lived in Cumberland County. Sure. No great searches on this name. And we named it Cumberland Advisors. And that's how we got the name, 1973. So you guys, since we're talking about Cumberland County, you guys essentially decamped a few years ago from Florida, from New Jersey to Florida. What motivated that move? You know, well, the old the, the old Seinfeld <laughs> joke is, well, he's Jewish. He lives in the Northeast. It's the law. He has to go to Florida. But you were really, there were well, a lot more. Uh, we, not only that, we went to the West Coast. Not so it's a whole Coast. different thing. So you want right. to so you you visit New York, go to Boca. Del Boca but Vista. on the West Coast, it's a little different. <laughs> So, so, so what was the motivation behind uh, – not an easy thing to up and move an entire company. Well, I'll give you the story in an in a, uh, abbreviated form. We had looked at Florida for some time. We found ourselves on airplanes every week to some city from Philadelphia. We made a series of uh, a series of inquiries and decisions, East Coast versus West Coast, which city on the East Coast, Palm Beach – Fort Lauderdale, where do you go? Where are the airports? How do you get up and down between the airports? And the West Coast, we had a person working for us on the East Coast, so we already had a presence. We said, why don't we go to the West Coast and be in both places? One thing led to another. We ended up in Sarasota. But that's, that's the destination, what happened with the departure. Okay. Because you, you had been in New Jersey for decades. I still am. We still have a satellite office in New Jersey. We have two people in New Jersey. We have a legacy of business. But you had several Jersey. dozen people, yes. and the headquarters were in New Jersey. Yes, we now have 34 people, and two of them are in New Jersey. And we maintain an office and address in New Jersey. And we have a client base in New Jersey because we were there for almost half a century. Mm -hmm. But our operations are mostly in Sarasota, Florida. Um, there's a lot of good reasons to be there. People say, oh, you moved because of the taxes. I said, well, yes, taxes were one. It's a fact. Lifestyle is another. Uh, all of my people took us four years, Barry, to move the human capital to the firm, wow. and we did. We, we helped people relocate. That took cost. Uh, not one of them wants to move back. And they are uh, satisfied with the move. We hired in Florida a combination of things. We're at an all-time headcount high. We're at an all-time assets high. We're, it's been a marvelous experience for five years. Did you expect it to go as smoothly as it did? Because that's a hugely disruptive thing to an organization, especially— it, it was around, was it after the financial crisis or during? Yeah. Oh, this is all in the last five years. Oh, so it was after. So post-crisis. It yeah. seems, I'm going to make an observation, it seems that whenever there is a massive event, 
It could be the financial crisis. It could be 9-11. It galvanizes your thinking, and you subsequently take action. Is that a fair observation? I think it's a fair observation on human nature. For sure. We, we tend to like stasis. We have inertia. What does it take to move us? We have to have a shock. Shock comes along, we move. Any kind of shock. And uh, it, it, whether it's a shock of smoke in your cabin in Lean's Lodge <laughs> okay. or it's a financial crisis in 2008 and Lehman fails. We have a shock, you change. It takes a shock. Our view was motivated post-shock, but it was motivated because we did some serious examination on our clients, our base, our growth, and what did we find? We found wealth in older people are in Florida, and people from New Jersey who were our clients were now in Florida. Moving to Florida. And so we were back and forth and back and forth. And we said we need to be in two places. And so we were in both places. Now once we're in both places, where do you put the next element? In mm -hmm. the old place or the new place? Well, the people involved said we'd like to put that element in Florida. And the people who wanted to service and support it, work in it, said let, let I want to go. And one at a time. Now we had to move people. When housing was difficult to sell, when you had economic difficulties in New Jersey, when you had a 17-year-old daughter who was going to the prom, right. and she, her boyfriend, if she moved, there would be a crisis in the household. And I said, okay, wait till after the prom, wait till after graduation, we'll be in two places. We want you, we want our human capital intact. And so we did that. By the way, she went to the prom with somebody else. She broke up with the boyfriend. <laughs> no, but, well, that's a given anyway. Yes. So, but, but the point that is, that's what we did. We moved human capital by making it easy for them to solve their problems. That, that's a pretty good description of, of just about everything. I know we we have to get you out of here in about yeah. 15 minutes to go do some television. So yeah. let me plow through my last handful of, of questions. Um, one of the things I've been finding about this podcast, about speaking with people who I know and respect and have followed for years, they've all read a fascinating number of books, many of which I am not familiar with. I'm always surprised when someone says, uh, a guest last week suggested the Marine Corps' Uh, Warfighting, which is a book on uh, planning and management, which you would think has nothing to do with investing, but turns out to be a fascinating book. Tell me about some of your favorite books, whether it's finance-related or not. Well, there's a book by Kennedy, a Yale professor, and it's been around for a while, and it's The Decline and Fall of Great Powers. He, he has a sequel. But the decline and fall of great powers studies that very subject. I found that something to think about, whether it's Rome or Washington. Mm -hmm. And so it set me thinking in a more strategic framework and helped uh, crystallize that view. Uh, th th there are all kinds of books of history. I've read many of them. And I find that the reflection on history and how things happen and why are very important. And I, I, I'm, I favor some classical things. Such as? Give us some names. <laughs> oh, You're educating the next generation of investors and traders. Well, so. I'll tell you, I'll tell you uh, 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 something that struck me. I, I came down from Maine 
to be here with you and to have some things in New York. And then the first gathering at Lean's Lodge is coming up the weekend after Father's Day. And, mm-hmm. and we are about 40 people. And in the course of the discussions up there uh, with Randy Spencer, as you know, sure. one of our guides and others. And, and, and musical entertainment. And musical entertainment. We started to talk about the region and how the region and the former Acadians who lived there, because that was Acadia, and the history of this region, which go back before the Revolutionary War and deal with the war between the British and the French, which we called the French-Indian War, Mm -hmm. but it was really war between the British and the French. And when you get into that history, you find that the tribes of Indians were used by either side. Sometimes they switched sides. And you learn some of the history of a region which is now not taught in schools. It's a history of the United States which has escaped. There are many books on the French-Indian War, the early part of America, the pre-revolutionary period of America, and they are missing in the literary realm now. There's another series of books written by Beverly Swirling. Swirling has bestseller rankings. She's got a number of books and she's written about New York, and she starts with the period before the Revolutionary War, S-W-E-R-L-I-N-G. And the first book of hers, I've read them all. I think there are six, if I recall correctly, five or six. I've read them all, and the first one is City of Dreams. And she's a very skilled writer. This and is she, fiction or nonfiction? Well, it's historical fiction. Okay. So she has taken New York. At the time, it was settled by the Dutch, and Stuyvesant was the first leader. And she wrote the story about the very tip of this island as she was able to glean from a study of history. And then she weaves a tale. And her sequence of books give a view of New York through this lens of historical fiction, but it's very lively writing. It grabs you, and when it does, it clasps you to the book, and you don't put it down. I found that way. City of Dreams is the place to start, and if you do like it, there's three or four more. Any other books, any investing-relating books that um, stand out in your mind? Well, I read Ben Graham many years ago. The, The classics. Right. The classics, the classics. Now, there is a new book. Adventures in Muniland, the story of the municipal bond crisis from 2007 to 2014, and it's in galley proof right now. My co-authors, my colleagues are Michael Comas mm-hmm. and John Musso, and I had a little bit to do, and it's a great <laughs> book, and it is going to be out in July, and it will be available in August, and Bloomberg Radio is going to help us launch the book on August the 25th from our offices in Sarasota, Florida. That, that's fantastic. You know, I remember there being a, um, everybody knows Meredith Whitney came out with her famous 60 Minutes prediction about $100 billion in failures, and the muni bond market went crazy. You came out, I, I want to say, I don't remember if it was that week or the next day, but you were on TV the next day saying, this is reckless, this is irresponsible, there is just no indicia that this is going to happen. 
How did that how did that come about and what was the pushback that you got? Well, I can't speak for Meredith. She made her forecast and she's had to live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, how did your yeah. response come about to, to... Well, we we looked at this and we said it's absurd to think that $100 billion of defaults in the municipal bond space can happen in one year. Yeah, that Cannot was the forecast happen. by the end of the year. Yeah. And, and by it, the way, it hasn't happened in 10 years. No. So it's, and there are some defaults every year, and there always will be. But as a practical matter, the municipal bond space is very good grade credit, has, is very transparent, by the way. You think about your school board budget. You can go to the hearing. Right. You can read it. You, you're there. You know the people who are voting yes or no. Transparency is embedded in state and local government. We may not like the people making the government decisions, but the financial information is mostly clear most of the time. And we have a pretty sound distribution of government throughout the 50 states. Now, we have also poster children for trouble. Puerto Rico, Detroit, Stockton, California. It does happen. But as a practical matter, most of the time, the muni space is very dependable, and it's under the radar screen of a lot of investors. Shouldn't be, in my view. Right now, today, the 30-year Treasury bond of the United States, fully taxable to an American citizen, mm-hmm. is a little over 3%. And a very high-grade tax-free bond to an American citizen is a little over 4%. That's upside down and backwards. So it's 4% is the equivalent of almost 6% or seven. taxable. It's 7 depends on where you're taxed. Oh, including sure. if you're in a high-tax state, yes. California, Massachusetts, yes, yes. New York, that's like getting a 7% So bond. you're looking at where would you go today and have a double or triple A level of credit, very solid history, never failed to pay, and pay you 7% a year, return on your investment, Year after year after year, you can't find it, and you can get it. It's available right now. You can say to yourself, yeah, but, you know, what about other kinds of institutions? I'll give you an example. AAA credit, 300-year institution. Total funds in the endowment fund exceed the total debt of the institution. Mm -hmm. Tax-free bond. It's issued by an education bond structure by Yale University. Mm -hmm. Believe me, they will pay you. <laughs> and what is that yielding? About four today, tax-free. There you go. All right, so I ha- only have you for another six minutes, so let me go through my last few questions. Um, what are some of the enduring investing myths that you know get your goat, that, that you see and dislike? What sort of stuff? Uh, maybe that muni bond thing is one, but what, what are the the classic myths that you are offended by? Well, I I don't like when I see legal, meaning the law protects it, being Mm -hmm. used as ethical, Mm -hmm. meaning there's a judgment. And if it's legal, it's okay to do, even if it's going to impose financial pain on somebody, because I'm really structuring something that is legal. Give us, give us an example And taking advantage of them. We saw it in the financial crisis. We saw it in derivatives and some of the mortgage-backed securities. We saw it used in the restatements of values. We saw things where banks had an off-balance sheet 
liability. Well, Repo 105 with exactly. Lehman was just, that was, exactly. that was so, criminal. Yeah, that, well, there, it's it, amazing it, that it, there have not it, been prosecutions it, on that. If it were criminal in our system, there would be a criminal prosecution. And I don't think I've seen one. We have a new game Well, now. don't draw the conclusion that it wasn't criminal just because some prosecutor I'm not, I'm not. was talked into, hey, if you prosecute this, you're going to crash the economy. Yeah, I, That's the nonsense that the, prosecutors fail to do their job well, as well. There was no penalty imposed at some symmetrical balance equivalent mm -hmm. to the damage done by people who hurt millions and millions of people. There wasn't even a clawback of, of yeah. past stock options. And this latest game, this latest game of, we'll impose and negotiate and force a big fine on a bank and show how strongly we're regulating and cleaning the system is a farce. Well, you basically make the shareholders pay for the bad actions of some. That's right. And those people don't really suffer the yeah. pain. So, it, it's an embarrassment that so, you paid a big so fine. So there's an ethical breach. It offends me. I'm a Boy Scout. Uh, that's the way I grew up. Mm -hmm. I, learned, I learned business methods in a grocery store. Mm -hmm. And in a grocery store, if you want your customer to come back, you don't put the soiled fruit in the bottom of the peck. And when they take the top tomato off, underneath is there's a rotten one. one. Right. So, last two questions. Um, what advice would you give to a recent college graduate or a millennial who is just starting out his career today? Read history and study hard and be patient and keep smiling. That, that's pretty good advice. And my last question that I ask all of our guests, what do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you began in 1970s? The older I get, Barry, and the more I do this, the more I realize how little I know. And that <laughs> makes it so exciting. I love what I do. I love it. I get up in the morning. I said, you are in the midst of extraordinary financial times. You spent the last 50 years of your life as an adult, mostly as an adult. Right. Last 40 years. Preparing yourself to be in the asset management business. In these remarkable times, you are now writing the textbooks and will be, and they'll be used 30 years from now. It's a very, very exciting time to be in finance and economics. I love every minute of it. David, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know we got to scoot you out of here in 45 seconds. You've been listening to my interview with David Kotak. He is the founder and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors and author of the forthcoming book, Adventures in Muniland. Uh, I will see you up in Maine in Fishing about a month. lesson. I owe you a fly rod lesson. You do owe Thank me a fly you. lesson. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Be sure and check out all of our other interviews. Look an inch up or down on iTunes. You'll see all of these. And uh, be sure and check us out next week. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Thanks for coming by. Thank you.